We're coming to the end of our study of Ephesians tonight, and it's Ephesians 6. And um, I just want to review real quick what chapters 4 through 6, kind of what the flow of thought is in those chapters. Um, They are the second half of the book, and they really describe for us the community of people in whom Christ has been made real. The people who are in Christ and the people in whom is Christ. And it's that oneness of the Messiah that brings the body together. And chapter 4 through 6 really describe the effects of that work that God has done in bringing us together in one in Christ and in pouring Christ into each one of us. The effects of that. How that, how that works itself out in daily life, right? It's one thing to contemplate the heavenly reality of that in all of its awesomeness, chapters 1 through 3. But it's another thing to say, so when you look around, what does it look like? What does it, what does it feel like? And so chapters 4 through 6 are about putting on Christ. All right, God has done his part through Christ by the Holy Spirit. And now we appropriate that work into our lives and we put on Christ. And as we do that, it deals with them, all the motives of the heart, anger, lust. It trains us to relate properly to God once more, as we were created to do, and to relate properly to one another in a way that fosters unity and it leads us further into the presence of God in our midst. We are built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. Um, So that's the big flow of thought in Ephesians 4 through 6. And a few of the major takeaways, I think, for us particularly, and I hope, I don't know how clear these have been along the way, but I just want to underscore what I think is important for us to be contemplating and learning about, allowing God to teach us. Um, A few things. Number one would be, the fear of God, but along with that, submission and humility. They're all part of the same package. One who who submits to God does so in the fear of God, and one who does that exhibits humility before him. All right, and they're all part of the same package. Um, And also it says to submit to one another in the fear of God. Okay, so the life that, that Christ manifests among us is one of submission and humility and ultimately the fear of God. Another thing, another key takeaway is that the state of our hearts is often manifested by our speech. And we look for, we look for patterns of speech that might indicate hearts that are still given over to anger, bitterness, malice or hearts that are still given over to lust or sensuality. Just me gaining pleasure for myself. And then the third key takeaway, so we have the fear of God, submission and humility, and then just the importance of speech as, a, as, a, as kind of, it's the fruit, right? It's the fruit of what's going on for good or, or ill. And then finally, that, that the days are evil. All right, and I don't know if I talked about this that much. I'm going to talk about it tonight. That the days are evil. Okay, we live in the shadow of sin. 
right? Christ has come and dealt with sin, but until he comes again and puts everything to right, we have a down payment on our inheritance, but we don't have the full thing yet. And we live in the midst we live in the midst of a, of a crooked and perverse generation, as Paul says in, in Philippians. But the days are evil. He says, don't be drunk with wine, uh, but be filled with the Spirit. And don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Redeeming the time, capturing every moment, every conversation, every time that we gather, every interaction, redeem it. Make it the best it can be, because the days are evil. The days are full of, and by evil he means not just evil, just triviality, right? Triviality is part of the evil day. Um, Foolishness is part of the evil day. Just joking around, passing the time is part of the evil day. So he says, you you can't be passive You must be active, and this is a big part of what he ends the letter with when he talks about putting on the whole armor, and we'll get there. So the fear of God, submission, and humility as the general lifestyle of the people of God. Speech as a key indicator of where the heart is, and then the days are evil. We're not in a neutral, we're not in neutral territory. There are spiritual realities around us, whether you acknowledge it or not. There are spiritual realities around us that are opposed, actively opposed, to godliness and unity. And they are working. Okay? They are working. And you can fight against them, or you can be conquered by them. And those are the only choices. There's no neutral zone. Okay? So as we get into chapter 6, he's right in the middle of talking about the key relationships in the body. Okay, the key relationship, the relational structures, okay? We've talked about the relational dynamics that go on and how we speak the truth in love and how Christ in me and Christ in you builds it together. And we t- tried to grasp all those kind of mixed metaphors that Paul has about being joined together and compacted. But now we have the structure of the relationships, kind of the visible uh, structure. And we've, we've talked about husbands and wives, and let me just go through these. There's, there's three pairs of relationships. There's husbands and wives, there's children and parents, and there's slaves and masters. Okay? Each of those represents somebody who wields authority and somebody who's called to submit. And there are instructions on the authority side that are very similar to one another. And there are instructions on the submission side that are very similar to one another. And he begins all of that by saying, submit to one another. Everybody submit to each other in the fear of God. Now, here's some specific structures in which you submit or you wield authority with godly self-sacrifice. So, husbands and wives, bottom line, the husband loves the wife, lays down his life for her, protects her, feeds her, Uh, washes her in the water of the word, meaning brings her into the fullness of salvation, right? Helps her find a relationship with God. Helps her find deliverance from sin. Helps her go through the baptismal waters and come out pure and holy on the other side. Your wife's salvation, husbands, 
should be one of the top priorities of your life. Your wife's spiritual flourishing should be one of the top priorities of your life. Do you think about her salvation often? Or do you think about your own? <laughs> Are you concerned with her coming into the fullness of salvation? The wife submits to her husband, and in the end it says, Husbands, he says, nevertheless, in verse 33, he sums it up. He says, Husband, you love your wife. Wife, respect. It's the same word as fear, reverence, your husband. Demonstrate that particularly to your husband. Children and parents, um, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. My boys have that memorized, or they, they did at one point. You guys remember that verse? Yeah, Ephesians 6.1. And then it quotes one of the Ten Commandments. Honor the father and mother. And it says, this is the first commandment with a promise. It's not just saying, hey, this happens to be the first commandment in the list that has a promise attached to it. What it means is, this is the first commandment. This is the greatest commandment. It's the same language that's used when the people ask Jesus, hey, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, and so it's, it's, it's a matter of importance, not just sequence, okay? He says, and he's talking to children. He's addressing children. Hey, children. Hey, children. You know what the greatest commandment in your life is? What's the most important thing for you? Honor your father and mother. That's the first commandment. That's the greatest commandment. That's your number one priority at this point in your life. That's what he's saying. This is the first commandment, and he says, and it has a promise. That it may go well with you, and you may live long in the land. And then he, then he addresses fathers. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. Don't enrage your children. An angry dad leads to angry kids. It's a simple equation. Don't provoke your children to anger. Don't try and, and anger them into what you feel like they need to be. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The, uh, the discipline is, is nurture. I don't know why it uses the word discipline, because it's the same word that it tells husbands to do to their wives. That does discipline their wives. <laughs> Nourish and cherish. It's the same. It's the, bring your children up in the nourishment. So feed your children. Feed them physically, but feed them spiritually. Do you, do, do you give them the bread of life? Do you speak the word over them? Bring them nur the nurture and instruction or admonition. And this is a great word. The admonition is a, is a warning. And this says, this is the same word that's used in 1 Corinthians 10, where it says the scriptures were written for our instruction, for our warning, so that we would, in our minds, remember, oh yes, when the people of Israel started to grumble, look what happened. When they uh, started to go aside and worship idols, look what happened. Keep that in mind. So an admonishment is something you, you keep something in your mind. You, you put something, you keep it at the top of your mind. Okay, That's what an admonishment is. 
It's a warning. Hey, remember, don't forget. All right? And this is what we're to do to our children. We're to constantly call to their mind the way that they should go. In the nurture, in the nourishment of the word, and in the admonition of the word. When it talks about slaves, obey your earthly masters, we could just as easily, I think even more easily, uh, apply this to situations where you get paid for your labor, okay? Um, You're getting something in return, and so I think especially you need to show submission to your earthly masters. Um, It's the same word, fear again, reverence. It's what it's what it, said, it tells wives to do with their husbands. It, what it, it's what it tells all of us to do towards God as we submit to each other. And then it says a great thing. It says, "Not as eye service, not by way of eye service. You don't serve the sight of your boss. This is profound." You serve, it says, not by way of eye service, but serving, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord. You don't serve the eyes of your boss. You serve the eyes of God. You are, you serve as unto the Lord. Knowing that whatever anyone good, whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord. Um, Paul's not concerned with, and people point to this, and they say, Paul's advocating slavery. That's not the case, all right? Um, He he didn't have our modern American uh, baggage when it comes to slavery, okay? He's saying, we find the situation of slavery troubling, all right? It It was a fact of life in the ancient world, and Paul is not concerned as much with addressing the slave's lot in life. That's not what he's speaking to. What he's speaking to is what to make of your lot in life. And I think we can apply this to ourselves. We get concerned with changing our lot. And maybe sometimes we need to change our circumstances. But very often what God wants to do in our lives is not change our circumstances. He wants to change the way we relate to our circumstances. And he wants to teach us how to be the best slave we can because that's what really pleases God does God want people to be indentured servants for their whole lives I don't believe so but if someone's an indentured servant what's more important being godly or being free God can handle the freedom part we've got eternity to be free but we only have this life to show how to be a godly slave and that's more glorifying to God. Does that make sense? Yes, God. I think God frowns on slavery. He frowns on human, all forms of human injustice. But he also frowns on whenever we go through life trying to find the best circumstance for me rather than finding the most glory for God in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. So that's why I think this slaves and masters part can be pretty powerful for us. All right, so that's the, the structure of the relationships in the body of Christ. You have, uh, you have humble, self-sacrificial authority, and you have joyful, reverent submission. 
And that working together shows forth the image of God in the earth. And these are the particular relationships in which we can do that. Then he turns pretty quickly in verse 10. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And we can't move on. Okay, we're talking about relationships. We don't move on to talking about spiritual warfare. We are talking about being the people of God in the evil day. And he doesn't move on to then talk about this isolated, kind of weird spiritual thing called spiritual warfare. All right? He is still talking about being the people of God in relationship. And we can't miss that. There is a persistent and pervasive connection in the New Testament between humility and submission and the ability to resist the devil. James 4, 7 through 10 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. This is humility. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Right in the middle of all that admonition to be humble, he says, and resist the devil and he'll flee from you. 1 Peter 5, 5 through 9 says this, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. What does he say? Husbands and wives, children, parents, slaves, masters, and fight against the devil. And the devil hates what you're doing. That's what he's saying. And he says this. This will, this will change your life. This will change your life. It will change your marriage. It will change your relationship with your children. It will change your job. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, this evil day, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. How is that going to change your marriage? Because your problem with your wife is not a problem with your wife. It's a problem with the enemy who wants to divide you from your wife. Your, your battle is never with your husband. It's never with your wife. It's never with your kids. I'm just fighting with my kids over this thing. No, you're not. You think you are, but you're not. You're fighting against the devil. And if you use fleshly weapons to fight what you think is a fleshly battle, you will lose 100% of the time. 
you will get divorced. You will hate your children. They will hate you. And you will end up like the rest of the majority statistics in this evil day. If you wrestle against flesh and blood. So we're talking about relationship. And he says, don't fight against flesh and blood. What does it say? Christ has already, already broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And you're acting like it's still there and you're trying to tear it down. He already did it. And the only thing that could get it down was the blood of Christ. You're never going to get that wall down. He did it. You then have to walk and appropriate his work. And here's the thing. When you're fighting with your kids, when, when your kids are fighting with you, you need to stop. And with wives, husbands, or if you have trouble with your boss, you need to stop and say, um, like the Robert Frost poem, Mending Wall. I, I let, this reminds me of it. He says, something there is that doesn't love a wall. He sees the stones, they keep falling off. And he says, something there is that doesn't love a wall, that wants it down. And he doesn't know what it is. He's like, how come every spring there's stones falling off? And he, he, the whole poem is him wondering, what is it that's tearing this wall down? Something there is that doesn't love your relationships, that wants them down. Something there is that does So you need to stop. If you have strife, you need to say, something there is that doesn't love my relationship with my wife. Something there is that does not want my children and I to live in a peaceful relationship where I am the father and they are the children. Something there is, and we know what that something is. <clears throat> All right. So, I said I was going to try and finish quickly. That, that is what the whole chapter is about. These are the relationships. Here's how you act. Satan hates it. <laughs> That's it. That's Ephesians 6. This is how you act in these types of relationships, and Satan cannot stand it. Let me just read. Therefore, take up the whole armor. That's the panoply. That's the, the, the complete outfit. All right, the Greek heroes. There's always these great sequences in Homer's epics where they arm the hero, and that this is like spilled over into epic uh, films too, where they, there's this time they're in their armor room, right? And there's the right. That this that's a that's an ancient uh, trope, right? It's the it's the panoply, the the whole armor is is you need everything, all the all the all the guns, and the, you've got the gun pockets within the pockets and the there's just everything ready to go. All right? You take up the whole armor. Arm yourself. And it's not the fleshly armor. It's the armor of God. Okay? So you don't just get your own ideas and arm yourself with what you think is the solution. You have to go to God and say, I need what you give me. I don't have the right weapons. Paul says that we don't, we don't wage war according to the flesh. Our weapons are not carnal. All right? We often bring carnal weapons to what we think is a carnal battle. But we need to take up the armor of God so that we can withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm. Stand, <laughs> therefore, he says. Having fastened on the belt 
of truth. If you don't have truth, you're going to have some droopy drawers. Right? No one wants to get caught with their pants down. You put on the belt of truth. I don't think a belt in the ancient world was used to hold up their pants, so I don't think that's good exegesis. I don't think they had pants. I think they had, like, whatever they were. Tunics. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. That's a great image. Righteousness will protect your vital organs. And as shoes for your feet, I like this, having put on the readiness. Readiness given by the gospel of peace. Proverbs talks about feet that are swift to shed blood. And Ephesians talks about shoes that are ready to make peace, that want to run toward peace. Right? When I run out of the house in my bare feet, it's not good. I get like four steps and I go, oh, I should have put on shoes. And I'm like walking on the, I'm walking on the asphalt and it's, it's not good. I'm not ready to do what I need to do. But when I have shoes on, I can run for miles. We should have on our feet ready to go the distance for peace. Right? If we don't have those shoes for peace, we're going to get four steps into a relationship, into a relational conversation and we're going to go, oh man, my feet really hurt. We have to put on the shoes, the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. He is shooting arrows at you and they are on fire. I know, it's awful. It's scary. And the helmet of salvation. Right? A lot of these are protective and defensive. And then there's the sword of the spirit. I was half expecting it to start up. Because there's some problem with our car that you can start it just by clicking the button enough. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. All right. So, let me just ask some questions um, to bring us to a close here. What do your relationships, particularly the ones that he describes here, what do those relationships in your life tell you about, first, what do they tell you about your walk with God? The way we conduct ourselves in these specific kinds of relationships is a key indicator of whether we do really submit ourselves to God or fear Him or humble ourselves before Him. Okay? Wives. Satan succeeded in getting Eve to doubt the intentions of the most above reproach being that has ever been. All right, he succeeded in getting Eve to go, I don't know about that guy. But the real tragedy is that she took the doubt of the character of God, the doubt of the intentions of God, as permission to throw out his commands and to do what she wanted. Oh, yeah, you know what? I'm not sure about what God wants, so... I want to do the opposite of what he said. I'm going to do this. 
God has called you, wives, to undo this rebellion by submitting to a husband who definitely is imperfect. (laughs) He is surely imperfect. Proving then to the heavenlies, right? Remember how it said that the church reveals to the heavenly realm the manifest wisdom of God. You are to prove to the heavenly realm that you are devoted to God and that he wins by submitting to your husband. So you are proving, oh yeah, who in the world would submit to this guy? Nobody in their right mind. But someone who has heard from God submit to this guy and responds in total obedience. They know who God is. And they don't take a character issue or personality issue or doubts about intentions, and they don't take that as license to do whatever they want. They're going to follow God's example. And even in 1 Peter, it says, even if you have unbelieving husbands, you're going to show them who God is by the way that you submit. It's a powerful thing if you grab a hold of it. Husbands. It was much more of a sacrifice for Christ to lay down his life for you than it ever will be for you to lay down your life for your wife. And if you struggle to serve your wife, if you struggle to put your own masculinity on hold to help meet her needs, if you struggle with that, you really don't understand who you are in light of who God is. You really don't understand the grace that you've been given. You think that you deserve grace from God, which you don't. The way you treat your wife reflects how deeply you understand the way Christ has laid down his life for you. And those who are gripped by gratitude and humility that the Son of God would shed his blood for me, (laughs) those who are gripped by that are able to love their wives. Those who struggle to lay down their life for their wife really don't understand the love of Christ kids if you're still with me probably not your parents rules are much easier to live with than God's are (laughs) your house rules are much more tangible and easy to achieve than God's house rules are God's house rules for for, have spilled many uh, many of the blood of a goat (laughs) right? Have your parents ever asked you to sacrifice a goat so that you can keep living in the house? No. They asked you to keep your room clean. But here's the thing. If you struggle to obey your parents, you're definitely not going to be able to obey God. God has said, you need to learn how to obey. Now, here's these people who don't have everything figured out but who love you and who are going to tell you to do things and you need to say yes sir or yes ma'am and that's that and that's going to teach you then to say yes sir to me says God when I tell you to do something even something that's hard even something that might cost you your life you need to learn how to say yes sir
employees same thing applies we don't have to we don't have time to get into all that do this on the job too so what do your relationships tell you about your walk with God do they do they indicate that you really understand and have fear towards God and really want to obey his commands or do they indicate that you don't really understand who who the God is who's calling you to do these things Number two, what do your relationships, these particular relationships, tell you about our battle against the kingdom of darkness? Like I said, something there is that doesn't love submission. Your submission, well, let me say this, Satan hates, he hates with every fiber of his being hates godly order and submission. Hates it. Wants to snuff it out wherever he sees it. His agenda is always autonomy and anarchy. No rules, no leaders. This is why the American way is so subtly destructive to the kingdom of God. The individual is the foundation of society. But look at he he went to he destroyed Eden. How did he destroy Eden? How did he destroy the perfect place, the household of God? He isolated Eve and he started whispering winds of doctrine and undermining the authority of God. Questioning, well, it's not exactly right, or God's hiding some things from you. This is how he destroyed paradise. This is how he brought destruction into the earth. And this is not just a danger for women or wives. It's a danger for all of us. We get isolated in our own hearts, and we start listening to winds of doctrine. This is why Paul cautioned, we need to be together and be unified, not isolated, because there's winds of doctrine that come. And start to erode our submission and our commitment to submission and humility. And start to puff ourselves up. And these deceptions and lies, they start to alienate us from God and from one another. We get isolated. We hear things. We doubt people. We question. We hide. And before you know it, we are a part of the evil system that is doing that and repeating that in other people's lives. So, in your submission, do you really, do you understand that your submission is a weapon against the enemy? That to fight back, we submit to one another. And to push back against, and to to reject the lies, we submit. We take up the shield of faith, and we say, all those fiery darts of the evil one, those winds of doctrine that come our way, we hold up faith, which is very closely related to submission and humility, trust. No, we trust. And the the arrow doesn't hit us. No, we're going to continue to submit. No, we're going to continue to be humble. No, I'm not going to trust my own desires. And every time you do that, another arrow gets blocked. You have faith. That's one thing. Do you submit? And do you understand that your submission is a weapon against the enemy? 
But the second thing that we, that we learn about the way that we wrestle is we waste too much time wrestling flesh and blood. We keep, it's on earthly terms for too long before we acknowledge this is a spiritual thing. The enemy hates this relationship and we need to stop fighting each other and we together need to turn and say something there is that doesn't love this relationship. Let's figure it out and fight against it together and allow God to kill whatever in us is perpetuating the alienation and the isolation. We wrestle flesh and blood. Every time you try and figure someone's personality out and, and try and figure out your own personality, you're wrestling against flesh and blood. You're wrestling on human terms. Every time you get bitter that someone doesn't really speak your love language, you're wrestling against flesh and blood. I mean, those are human terms. Does God love the bride of Christ with her love language? No. He loves her with his blood. And that's how we love each other. We waste time wrestling flesh and blood. And you say, yeah, but... And that's Satan's favorite phrase. (laughs) Yeah, but... Yeah, but... You're not really going to die. He just knows that when you eat this... Yeah, but... That's his favorite phrase. And if you live your life in relationships... And there's always a yeah, but you're not fighting against the enemy. He's winning in your life. Amen. We live in an evil day, which means we live in an age of yeah, but. In the five seconds that I was just silent, I think there were probably upwards of 40 billion yeah buts that just got posted to Twitter. Don't fact check me on that. We live in an age of yeah but, but God is searching for those who will say yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. Be it unto me according to your word. You know who said that? Mary. You know what happened then? She gave birth to Jesus Christ. Yeah. Be it unto me according to your word. So, that that takes us out into the battle from Ephesians. I mean, we have, what a broad sweep of theology Paul has taken us on. What an amazing book. Everything from the eternal purposes of God from before the foundation of the world to down in the trenches in this evil day. And I hope that you have drunk deep of this and will continue. This is a, this is a perennial book for us. All right, so this is not the last time we'll go through the Ephesians. This isn't the last time God will speak deeply to you out of Ephesians. Um... But I am just so excited that we have gotten to uh, do this, and uh, especially during this time. You know, I really think that God 
providentially had us in Ephesians during all the pandemic stuff uh, to really to, to really just help us to go deep on the essentials. All right. Um, so there we are, and and so we're moving on from here. Uh, we're going to go back to the Old Testament now, um, and we're going to go into First Samuel. And I'll send out a reading schedule. Um, but here's what I here's why I just want to prime briefly. I want to prime you to start reading in First Samuel uh, because I think it it really piggybacks on some of the stuff that God's doing in our body from from Ephesians. The book of First Samuel, in particularly, one of the major themes is this: man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And that really does resonate with a lot of the things we've been talking about in Ephesians. God's looking, God's building together a dwelling place that's not outward, it's not visible, it's not made by human hands. It is in the hearts of those people who have put on Christ. And in the heavenly places, which is not just way out there, it's we're in the heavenly places, right? We've been seated with him in the heavenly places. But that's where we live, unto and from. God looks at the heart. God works in the heavenly realm. And so, yes, we are going back into the Old Testament. But I think it's going to be alive and vibrant, some of these principles. All right? 1 Samuel is a book about, well, 1 and 2 Samuel are a book about the deceptive nature of appearances and the reality of a heart after God. All right, and the superiority of a heart after God above any sort of fleshly strength. Um, so I think this is a great place to go out of our time in Ephesians. Amen? All right, well, let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, being with us tonight. Thank you again for this perfect evening to gather. And uh, we just praise your holy name and ask that you would continue to go with us, continue to open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your word. And uh, may we glorify you, Lord. May we say yes, Lord, to you. And as we, Lord, conduct ourselves in, in these particular relationships, Lord, give us a heart of true humility, of true reverence, of true fear of God. Um, and may the enemy flee as we lay down our lives for each other in the way that you did for us. Uh, in the name of Jesus and for his glory, amen.